HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It's a little uh, it's a little funky in here today. We are post the Roberta's annual holiday party. So looking out on an, on an empty uh, a restaurant right now, but excited to have a full studio. Um, you're tuned into the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and today we are joined by John Foss, who's the founder and CEO of the Chiaco Company. <laughs> John, welcome to the show. Aaron, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's, it's lovely to be here. I'm actually super excited because, of course, you know, if you've been following news or pop culture at all, you're familiar with chia seeds. They are pretty much ubiquitous on any January hit list for changing your life in a myriad of ways. Um, but John, you were way ahead of the chia trend. And I'm wondering if you can tell us where you first encountered uh, chia and in what form. Yeah, it's been uh, well over 10 years now I've been in the chia game. I've been growing chia since the early 2000s in Australia. And I learned about it um, in 2001. And that was really when I was looking for uh, products in the health and wellness space looking for plant-based solutions to some of the dietary issues in the modern world and recognize that chia had the ability to really make a difference so that's what i think is so interesting now you're a fourth generation farmer but your your family produced primarily com- commodity crops before that is that right yeah that was it i was part of a i am part of a family that's been farming a very large wheat farm in Australia. It's like three times as big as Manhattan. There's only our family on it. But I was, uh, I came home from university and was farming the wheat but became very frustrated with the lack of connection between what we were doing on the farm and the consumers that were eating the food. And I was recognising the issues in the food industry and how our fabulous products were taken and turned into highly processed products added to sh- with sugar and 
other uh, ingredients and really turn them into unhealthy products. And I wasn't satisfied of being part of that. So I, uh, I was awarded a Nuffield Scholarship, which is like a Rhodes Scholarship of Farming and Agriculture, and in 2001 travelled the world looking at the food industry from one end to the other and really trying to understand you know, what was driving the food industry and how we could make a difference. And it was that at time I learned about cheer. Yeah, so that I want to talk a little, a little bit more because you know, you're traveling the world. You have a global scholarship to study food trends. So you know, here in, in Brooklyn, in New York, when we think about food trends because we're obsessed with ourselves, we're like, oh, what's the hot new thing at, at a restaurant and what are people are, are serving right now and what's like the technique that chefs are using and the ingredient that people are focused on. But when you're looking at things from a global spectrum with an egg background, I mean, how do you even start like breaking that down? Like what are some of the other things that are kind of up in that that category of things that you were seeing back in the early 2000s? Well, as a farmer, I'd always been passionate about food and agriculture and understanding and, and having the intimate knowledge of where food comes from and how it's grown and the impact on the environment. And when I was traveling on that study scholarship, there was one point I was at a farmer's market in London and I was really asking myself the question, why are these affluent consumers that could be going to any high-end supermarket choosing to come to a farmer's market and be out in the weather um, buying their produce? And, and the answer when I spoke to them was that they really were searching for connection with their food. They wanted to talk to the farmer. They wanted to understand where their food came from, how it was grown, and, and really understand the impact of that food. And that was the time I really recognised that what I wanted to do was develop that farmer's market model but do it on a global scale to make a difference. So you you decide, like, cheers where it's at. Um, but how does that how does that go from, you know, how do you go from, like, an idea on paper and, like, you know, your plan as, like, a, a newly graduated, you know, student to coming back and I'm guessing pitching your family or who did, who did you go to when you're like, guys... I, got, I see the future, and the future is Chia. Well, what happened, I was looking for opportunities and really looking for those plant-based solutions. And at that time, I saw this very small documentary uh, about a, some research was done on a group of Mexicans near the U.S. border. And most of the people in the population were suffering from diet-related diseases, obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol. But the researchers found that it was a small group in the population that weren't suffering those effects. And the only thing they did differently was take chia seed in the morning in the form of a chia fresca, just chia seeds with some lemon juice and water. And that was having the impact of stabilising their blood sugars, reducing their um, their diabetes issues, uh, increasing satiety, uh, slowing the conversion of carbohydrates to sugars in the blood. So it was all having all these amazing effects. So I was inspired and uh, I really wanted to know more about the seed and really understand whether you know what they were talking about was true. So I started to travel and research through Central and South America. I got samples. I did all the testing and analysis, and it really did stack up as being the richest uh, plant-based combined source of omega-3 fibre and protein, which was really what you know a lot of the modern diet lacks. So I saw it had potential. The next question was why, if this is such an amazing seed, why isn't it already in supermarkets? Why aren't food companies putting in their food? Right. And the answer was that no one had really dedicated to building a sustainable supply chain. So investing in the production on the farms and then supply chain through the food markets. And so I really then, you know, I left our family farming business and set off to um, develop that and really create 
the production and sustainable supply chain for Cheer, which I dedicated the next five years of my life to. So prior to um, the founding of your farm, which is in Australia's Kimberley region, Chia was mostly founded in South America. Where, like, Did it geographically locate in specific types of climate, or does it do well in a variety of climates? Or Yeah, so it's, um, it's a photosensitive crop. It needs to be grown around 15 degrees north or south of the equator because the day length post-flowering of the seed is what affects the omega-3 content in the oil. So it can only be grown in quite a, a tight latitude globally, and that latitude is where our farms are in northern Australia, where I um, started the cheer industry and, and then brought in a number of other farmers that were at the time growing sugar and sugar cane and looking to change from a commodity crop and be part of a crop that was going to make a positive difference to health and wellness. So they were very eager to follow with me and join and grow cheer. Uh, and now around the world there's still some cheer grown in Mexico and parts of Central and South America and then Australia where we have our, our cheer farms. So that's a little different, I feel like, than what you see a lot now in the, the latest kind of super food. It, you know, I, I feel like more you have companies going to where the food is already being produced and looking to uh, expand production or streamline the systems where it's located. Was that something you ever thought about? Or you were just like, definitely I want to spend my time in Australia, so I'm also looking for something that I can do in, in my home country? No, we've got projects in uh, Central America, South America, Africa in that same latitude. But one of the things that was a limitation was that all the cheer that was grown in those areas was dry land farmed. So if there was a lack of rain or there was a frost, there'd be low yields, low quality and no supply. And that was one of the reasons why the food industry and the retailers weren't uh, adopting cheer in their products because they were saying it was too unreliable. And so what I had to do to give the food market confidence to include cheer either on their shelves or in their food products was to give them security of supply so that we could supply it every, every year, every week, every day. And once I could do that and guarantee the supply on a consistent quality of food companies, then they started to incorporate in their products. But to do that, we water our crops. So we, we hand irrigate and that ensures we have the perfect uh, amount of moisture in the soil when the crop's flowering and forming the seed and then forming the omega-3 so we have the right uh, profile in every seed. So what's fascinating to me about this conversation is it seems you're very comfortable, like situated in this global perspective where the majority of the farmers and food producers that I have on are looking at things at a much smaller scale, uh, either hyper-local or even, you know, for larger producers, you know, um, dealing with kind of something that's regional or region-specific. And that's always just been your point of view. You're like, when I think about production and scale and systems, like I think about it on a global basis. And it's kind of like the crowd you run with, I guess. Because to me, I'm like, I'm like, God, it would never even occur to me to be like, well, what's happening all over the world? Because it's, I mean, it's a lot to hold in your head. Yeah, and that's really, you know, I, I love, I actually, you know, am most passionate about being on the farm with my hands in the soil and really understanding soil health and the, interaction between the nutrients in the soil and the nutrients in the food and I studied biological farming and organics and I am really passionate about that. I realised though at an early stage of this that I had two choices. I could either be on the farm and grow some chia seeds and sell in the local market and have an impact regionally and, and locally and that would be an honourable thing to do but it wouldn't allow me to make a difference and I had a clear vision and, and a goal to, to make a a positive contribution. I believe that with cheer, 
I could impact the lives of people globally. So I always had that sort of global view. And coming from Australia, where it's a small population, relatively isolated in the global scene, you typically look outwards. And that's, you know, my first sales of cheer were to Korea and then to Japan and then to North America. So it was always a, a much bigger vision than just um, growing and selling it locally. So I want to take just a, a, a short, I promise it'll be a short detour here because I, I was surprised. I didn't know that chia, the chia seeds were the same as the chia pets that were so, I feel like they were so popular when I was a kid growing, <laughs> growing up. But I just want to say like it is, it's exactly the same thing as the chia I put in my smoothie this morning. It is the same seed. The only difference is that the, the company selecting chia seeds for the chia pet aren't concerned about the omega-3 content. As long as it sprouts, then it's, it's doing its job. And I spoke to that company years ago because they were looking for supply of chia seeds and said, well, we realise you're the biggest grower of chia seeds in the world. Maybe we should be doing business. But uh, our focus is all about health and wellness and nutrition, and so we had different goals. But, yeah, it's the same product. Um, which I, I think kind of for, for our, our listeners out there who are trying to kind of like imagine in their head what a chia plant looks like that gives us a little bit of a jumping off point. So can you maybe take us through, you know, the chia production cycle? So can I take a chia seed from my bag of chia seeds at home and, and plant it in my backyard? Or how, how would I, if I wanted to grow chia, where do I start? Yeah, it's an amazing little seed. It's it's hydrophilic, so if you've put it into a smoothie or a juice, you'll see that it attracts in the water and expands 16 times its weight in water. That's part of its uh, ability to attract water in a dry environment. And so chia seed is uh, planted as an annual crop. It grows for around 100, 120 days, depending on the temperature, so about um, four months from when it's planted to harvest. And then it's, um, it, it grows and produces a very long, elongated head on the top of the crop with tiny seeds inside little pods. And um, in our system, we ensure we water it at that, at that last part of its growth, and that's really the critical time to ensure you get plump, ripe seeds full of omega-3. If it runs out of moisture or it has a frost event, then it will be brown, immature seeds. So if you're looking at seeds and it has that, then there's been something's affected the omegas, and that's you know the best way visually to tell if it's good quality. Uh, and then we harvest it. And basically, it's very simple. I want to jump in for just a second here. So I put the seed in the ground. It's four months later. I'm standing in the middle of a chia field. Mm. What does it look like? Is it coming up to my like knees? Is it like, what to, color? Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful crop. It's um, it's from the mint family. Uh, beautiful soft green leaves and this long purple flower on top of it. So it looks amazing and on these and our very large scale chia farms. It's just this sea of purple just before the um, the ripening phase. And then it ripens in the head. One of the things we do is ensure we sun ripen, so we never apply chemical to the crop to, to dry it down. We swath the crop and it sort of put into windrow and then the combine harvest uh, harvests it. And that ensures we have the, the right nutrition, but we have the cleanest, purest product. Uh, and then it's really a simple process. It's really how it comes from the plant is how you consume it. You know, we remove the, tra- the chaff and the and the stems in the machine and then it goes through a process with aspiration and you have this um, sieving and then have a beautiful clean pure chia seed so there's no processing the way it's grown is the way it's eaten and so then you know if it takes four months from from when you plant it to when you harvest you can get multiple harvests over the course of a year 
we grow it once a year and it's really important to grow it uh, in a dry period because that hydrophilic property it means if it gets rainfall on it at the wrong time it does affect the the quality of the seed as well so it's not only a specific area that it grows globally but it needs a specific climate and that's why it hasn't been a crop that's been able to grow in huge volumes all over the world and be commoditized it's really a specific uh, crop to a region so what happens to your chia fields in their eight months off so then we uh, rotate and part of the sustainable process of growing the crop is to rotate with legume crops we grow beans and peas that will fix nitrogen from the um, from the atmosphere and fix that in the soil we rotate with grass species so we can rotate and mulch that in the soil so we're using a, a rotation of, of a grass a legume and an oil seed and that ensures we have the right balance of uh, microbes in the soil and nutrients in the soil fascinating well we are going to take just a short station break we are here in the studio with john foss who's the founder and ceo of the chia company uh, hang tight we will be right back listening to New Dutch by Mama Razzi. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we are talking chia. So we we got up to the point of of, of harvest and kind of what's happening into the in the fields when uh, you know post when you're not growing chia. So let's talk a little bit. How do you kind of store and and control quality? after the, the chia is out of, out of the ground? What does that process look like? So the keys are to make sure it stays dry because it, can't, uh, it does absorb moisture. So we, we have a very uh, controlled supply chain from our farms all the way through to our markets globally. One of the great things about chia is because of the nutrient density, you can ship uh, a lot of value in a low volume. So the carbon footprint of shipping chia to markets around the world is relatively low compared to a lot of other food products that contain a lot of water and moisture. So, uh, you know, when I talk to people about local production, you, you can't produce chia in, in Brooklyn and New York. It's in the wrong latitude. It gets affected by frost. It won't have the omega-3s in it if you grow it in your backyard because of the latitude. So it does have to come from that part of the world that is in the 15-degree latitude range. And so it is a product that does ship and, and can travel around the world. So from that perspective, we trace and track and really monitor our carbon footprint, and it, it is a really low um, low carbon footprint because of that. But the key for us is to make sure it's kept um, sealed and dry, and uh, and then we can take it to our markets. And 
we either supply it to food companies to put into their products and primarily their products like bread or snacks or baby food, um, beverages. A lot of smoothie companies are using Chia now. We also sell it in health food stores, which is a big part of our business. And then more recently, we've created our own range of products called Chia Pods, where we put chia seeds with coconut milk and fruit and um, and make a, a product that can be eaten as a snack or on the go and, and or for a breakfast food. Yeah, kind of like a like a version of a... I, to me, I, they feel like a little like pot of like a power bar. And they're vegan too, right? Vegan, yeah. yeah. Gluten-free. Um, and so that was... I mean, that was an obvious choice from the beginning. You're like, we're just going to fully commit ourselves to this segment of like the... You know, the, the vegan gluten-free component. You're just like... You're firmly in there. Yeah, plant-based food. Yeah. And we were really you know inspired when talking to our uh, customers that were buying chia seeds and asking how we're using chia at home and a lot of them were saying we, we make it into a pudding we add coconut milk or almond milk and put some fruit in and, and make this this pudding and have it in the fridge and it's a you know an amazing snack and we recognized that we could commercialize that into a product and make it convenient and get it to people so they have the nutrition of chia in a very convenient form yeah. Well, it's interesting because we, so we had um, Elaine Cumont, um, who's the founder of Le Pen Quotidien on um, last year, right around this time, actually. And they, for a long time, have served different types of chia porridges in their shops across the U.S. and in different spots around the world. And, you know, he was talking, we were talking about supply chain because they're like a big buyer of um, or organic products. And because they're an international company, you know, they're buying they're buying in bulk. But yeah. he mentioned chia in particular. He's like, ah, oh, the, the price of chia is so is fluctuating a lot right now. So he's like, we needed to buy like our entire year's supply in one go. So what is like from like the market standpoint, like what's happening in chia now? Well, that was the other thing I recognized very early that to make chia go from an interesting crop, but to be able to span to more mainstream consumers and be able to have it available we needed to have not only consistent supply and uh, a consistent quality of every batch every time, but we had to have stable pricing because we didn't. it wasn't good for the farmers and it's not good for the food markets or consumers to have this highly volatile price. So as he said, that's, that's an issue for someone that's trying to create more products with cheering. Yeah. So it's one thing we've been very dedicated to. We're not a trading-type model where we buy cheap and sell there. We have delivered as much profit as possible to the farm so that all the farmers can continue invest in growing more cheer and better quality cheer and we keep stable pricing at farm level and we keep stable pricing to our customers so when there's been these shortages or oversupplies at different times we've kept our prices very stable because we believe that gives people the confidence to to put cheer in their products or to buy cheer every day Right. Well, and then, too, it's always curious, like, what makes a, something that is a high-trend item like chia something that we're going to be eating and talking about a, a decade from now? And that's always been part of the strategy is, is look long run. It's, you know, we want to do and make decisions now that means the chia industry and the chia company is a company that is viable and sustainable in 50 years, not just in one or two. And so while there have been opportunities for us to you know, rapidly increase the price because of shortages or popularity. We've kept stable prices and say, no, this is about the long run. And that's a different mentality and different um, approach to the business when you have that, that view of the world. So you guys are currently supplying Chia to 36 countries around the yeah, world? Yeah. Wow. So when, 
how can you talk a little bit about the organizational structure? Like if I'm a farmer working for the Chia company, like what's that integration look like? So the majority of our Chia has grown in the Ord Valley of Western Australia, but we have expanded into Central America and Africa to work with local farmers there and take our sustainable production model and fair value model to them. And that's what's been really appealing to those farmers to start working with the Chia company and partnering with the Chia company. And then globally, we've recognised it's very important for us as a team to be close to consumers, to understand what consumers are looking for, understanding the trends in food. And that's brought us to New York. It's, uh, we have an office in London and a team there, an office in Australia. And then we have a big percentage of our Australian team that um, work in the Asia markets and they've lived and worked there and, and, and speak the, all the ang- Asian languages. So we've got a very multicultural team and we immerse ourselves in global markets so we really understand what consumers are looking for. So from like your your labor force is obviously people in the kind of sales and education space. And then for the actual farming of chia, like where like where where are like human hands touching the chia production? So obviously you have someone kind of like managing the overall production for a particular space on the land and someone you you had mentioned uh, com- combine harvesting, but for kind of planting and other general throughout the life cycle of the plant, like is it a high volume of labor or is it not not really it, it can be highly mechanized you can use modern equipment and we use modern technology to ensure we're monitoring and measuring the water in the soil the soil quality the air quality uh, the quality of the crop and we have a team that really um, work closely with the farmers particularly the new farmers that are growing cheer so that we can disseminate the knowledge that i've built up over you know 12 years of working with cheer that they can understand really quickly and implement the practices and the agricultural processes to get the premium quality cheer as quickly as possible so they're profitable and sustainable. So a big part of our business is about how do we transfer the knowledge to all people in the supply chain so they've got a better business for being part of cheer. And that's, um, that's about sharing and being very transparent uh, and ensuring you know flow of communication up and down the supply chain but also flow of profits back to, to the farms. And that's, um, you know, it's a part of my mantra is fair value for everyone that is in the supply chain and working with Chia. So if I'm, a, if I'm growing for you, do you have people growing who, like, it's their land, it's their farm, and they sell Chia, and you say, like, well, if you can meet these quality criteria, we'll buy at this price? Or, like, well, how does No, it's not like that. It's really, it's a long-term partnering process. Okay. So you become... You know, I'm a farmer and, and have farmland myself, and then we also have um, people who have their own farms that are then chosen to grow cheer with the cheer company. Right. And part of that process is one that they believe and understand and share my vision of making a positive contribution. So it's not something that will happen in one year. It's about a long-term commitment. It's about having stable and consistent pricing. So it doesn't matter what happens in parts of the world if there's oversupply, undersupply, or you know erratic pricing right, they know that out. there's a commitment from the cheer code from uh, stability and then um it's all it's about making a difference and growing the best quality over the long run so it's very much collaborative and all one there's one thing as a farmer there's you know you're growing crops and there's obviously an economic benefit you're looking for but one of the things you're really searching for is uh, an understanding of who's eating your product are you making a difference and really getting the appreciation for what you're doing. And everyone that's growing cheer with us, you know, we give them very um, open communication on their markets and their customers, who's eating our products, why they're eating it. And they love it. 
And as a farmer, it's one of the things that gives you a lot of uh, satisfaction that you're growing a product that's going to these global markets and they're making a difference. So that's as an important part of uh, being partnered with the cheer company as the economic side of it, which is, you know, obviously important, but I see both of them are critical in, in the relationship. Yeah, so I'm sure as I mean, as CEO, it's like, in, and in, in when you're farming at this scale, like um, data systems become a, such a huge part of what you're doing. And one of the things I think is like so interesting, um, uh, you know, where farmers are using like satellite technology and GPS technology, and so like all this kind of information that you have access to now to be a producer. Uh, in this century, it's like a whole different world. I mean, because, you know, you grew up in a family that was, has always been farming, at, at, or I don't know, maybe you haven't always been farming yeah. at a larger scale, but can you talk a little bit, I mean, just from like chatting with other folks in your family, like what the difference that like access to technology has made in what you're able to do or, or, or not to do in, you know, like what, what doors has that opened? The, the advancement in technology and agriculture is unbelievable. Like what is happening for information systems, what's happening with satellite technology is, is incredible and how fast that's moved in the last five years is incredible. We, we adopt and use the latest technology available to us. We think that's a really important tool. So we're farming this very sustainable model uh, in harmony with nature, high respect for the environment, but at the same time we're accessing and using the best technology we can to be as precise about how we grow the crop and ensure that we have the best quality every batch. Um, our whole logistics system, our whole uh, business runs off cloud, uh, cloud-based cloud uh, model. Um, we, I have absolute uh, transparency and traceability to every batch of cheer in every bag, to every field and every farm. Um, we, we can scan by barcode and I can tell you exactly what's happened on that field when any inputs that went into it. So the advancement in that technology has really given us the ability to to replicate the farmer's market model. You know, the farmer's market philosophy and model is the farmer being able to communicate to the consumer everything about that crop, where it was grown, what side of the hill, you know, what fertiliser was used, when it was harvested, when it ripened, when the moon cycles were... Um, how it was, you know, and that, I've never asked my farmer about the moon cycles. It's really, it's really yeah, important. No, I mean, it's really yeah. important, and um, and that we have that same ability to communicate. I have the same ability to communicate to someone that buys a product in New York or London or anywhere else, the same information about a batch of cheer that someone that's standing on the farm at a farmer's market has. Interesting. So uh, we're just about out of time, but I want to I want to kind of like round out. Um, plant-based you know so that's come up a couple of times like one was something you were specifically looking for initially in your search and then when you guys decided to um look at producing a product with the chia seeds also having something that was plant-based australia is not known as a i mean you guys are known as a country that likes likes their meat huge meat. so your your passion for plant-based comes from uh, a, a personal narrative or an interest in the health impacts or um, like why 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 that focus for you? No, it's not. You're right. Australia's big meat consumers. We've farmed, um, you know, uh, livestock as well on our farms. No, for me, it's because to make a difference to people's health, there needs to be a higher percentage of plant-based foods in their diet. And a lot of the modern diet is overweight in animal-based foods. So when people can choose plant-based foods and balance it, and for me, it's all about balance. Then you can make a positive impact. Uh, and cheer has such an amazing nutritional profile because of the plant-based omegas but also the the protein and all the amino acids and the fiber 
uh, when people start to include it in their diet, they feel better. And so, you know, that for me is when we're creating products based on chia, then complementing that with, you know, plant-based coconuts or almond milks and, and fruits um, just makes sense. Right, and, things that are already working in that space. Yeah. Kind of a off-the-cuff question here, but would there ever be a space for chia as uh, a crop for livestock? Look, chia's got a huge range of applications. It's mm-hmm. really... Um, it works well as an animal food for pet food for dogs. There's a there's a market for it in the equine market. Horses perform well on chia. Hmm. Um, there's value in both the stem and the leaves of chia, but really the the greatest value is in the seed, and that's why, you know, there's a lot of things we could do as a chia company. But the greatest impact we can have is the education and communication of the nutrition of chia seeds, and getting that into people's diets or into companies' products so they can improve their products. Yeah. Great. John, it's been really fascinating chatting with you. Thanks so much for making it out to Bushwick today. Thanks very much. Pleasure being on the show. Again, uh, we've been talking with John Foss, the founder and CEO of the Chia Company. You can find their products anywhere fine goods are sold um, or check them out on the World Wide Web for your latest Chia fix or or recipe ideas. Um, This has been another episode of The Farm Report. This show, like all 39 of our weekly programs, is available for free. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, and if you're, if you're hopping on there, definitely click that subscribe button. We'd love to come into your life on a weekly basis. Um, we are a membership-supported organization, so if you believe in our work, please visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. Click that Donate tab and become a member today. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.